I want to uh, start off tonight um, by uh, reading a piece from Suzuki Roshi. He says, in our scriptures, it is said that there are four kinds of horses, excellent ones, good ones, poor ones, and bad ones. The best horse will run slow and fast, right and left, at the driver's will, before it sees the shadow of the whip. The second best will run as well as the first one does, just before the whip reaches its skin. The third one will run when it feels pain on its body. The fourth will run after the pain penetrates to the marrow of its bones. You can imagine how difficult it is for the fourth one to learn how to run. When we hear this story, almost all of us want to be the best horse. If it's impossible to be the best one, we want to be the second best. This is, I think, the usual understanding of this story and of practice. You may think that when you sit, you will find out whether you are one of the best horses or one of the worst ones. Here, however, there is a misunderstanding of practice. If you think the aim of practice is to train you to become one of the best horses, you will have a big problem. This is not the right understanding. If you practice in the right way, it does not matter whether you are the best horse or the worst one. When you consider the mercy of Buddha, how do you think the Buddha will feel about the four kinds of horses? He will probably have more compassion for the worst one than for the best one. When you are determined to practice with the great mind of a Buddha, you will find the worst horse is often the most valuable one. In your very imperfections, you will find the basis for your firm, way-seeking mind. Those who can sit perfectly physically usually take more time to obtain the true way of practice, the actual feeling and the marrow of practice. But those who find great difficulties in practicing will find more meaning in it. So I think that sometimes the best horse may be the worst horse, and the worst horse can be the best one. Isn't that comforting? (laughs) Tonight I want to talk about the comparing mind. And following up on a few of the, the themes that have been spoken of already, about preferences, which Carol mentioned, and the extra dart that we put on <clears throat> on top of our experience, and about the possibilities of seeing the truth, seeing just how things are, and not getting so identified with experience. We've spoken last night. It's useful to talk about the comparing mind, perhaps on one level, because we see it and deal with it and um, you know, have to come to terms with it. And it might be like a, a, a nice 
comforting thing to explore so you don't beat yourself up as much. But in the most profound way, when you can understand this predicament and truly see through it, the understanding of the comparing mind and the freedom from the comparing mind is really what awakening is about. Where that sense of self is not operating. This is the free heart or the free mind. The Buddha talked about it in the phrase, the conceit of I am. That's how he he used the phrase, the conceit of I am. And conceit not only means putting yourself above, but any kind of comparison, self and other. And uh, perhaps you don't, uh, you might not know this, but even at the third stage of enlightenment, out of four stages, the fourth stage being a completely realized being, an arhat, at the third stage, which is not a bad place to be hanging out, there is still conceit in the mind. It's one of the last three of the ten fetters to go in those stages of, of awakening. There's conceit and restlessness and forgetting who we are. So if you find yourself caught in the comparing mind, you might think that, well, I'm no higher than third stage of enlightenment if you want to look at it that way. <clears throat> rather than beating yourself up, oh, there I am again. This is uh, the Buddha's words. One who thinks oneself equal to others, or superior or inferior, for that very reason disputes. But one who is unmoved under those three conditions, for that person the notions equal superior, and inferior do not exist. An accomplished person does not by a philosophical view or by thinking become arrogant. He is not led into any of the resting places of the mind. For one who is free from such views, there are no ties But those who grasp after views and philosophical opinions, they wander about in the world, annoying people. (laughs) And there's a whole lot of us annoying each other and annoying ourselves, isn't there? We all have a lot of company in this, if you notice it comes up from time to time. When does it come up for you? When has it come up for you today or these last few days? Have you noticed? You know, particularly on retreat, it's quite common to come up in um, the more social situations. I know this is a silent retreat. You're not making eye contact. But there are times when uh, there, you are part of a group in a very different way than just sitting on your cushion in the quiet, with your eyes closed, or in your room, particularly mealtimes. 
have you noticed? Rampant opportunity for the comparing mind to, to go. Another helping they're taking? Oh my God, I can't believe. Oh, how do I look? You know, uh oh, I just dropped my fork. You know? Slow down, slow down, stop being a pig. You know? It just happens. You know? Or walking, as you're doing the walking practice, minding your own business, somebody gets a little bit too close to your territory. You know? What do they want? Oh, look how they're walking. Gee whiz, I wish I could go that slowly. And depending upon what mood you're in, the very same stimulus can elicit a different response. You know, if you're feeling a little bit down on yourself, you know, and you see somebody going slowly, you know, it's, God, what a great yogi. I wish I could be like that. And then maybe the next day or a few hours later when you're just feeling kind of at home and in the practice and you see something going really slowly, look at Miss Mindfulness there, you know. <laughs> Who are they trying to impress, you know. Same exact thing, right? Or the reverse. You're walking, you're walking speed and somebody's going fast and it's, you know, God, they're just so natural. They're just so themselves. They, they don't have to impress anybody. You know? Or an hour later, somebody goes fast. You know, don't they get it? You know, Slow down, man. What are you doing? So it's not so much what is out there. It's what we do in the moment with our experience. And in relationship to other, as soon as there's other, there is often the comparing mind. Or there is this sense of presentation. I remember on one retreat, some of you have heard me say this before, I I would do the walking, I'd be all by myself and really going slowly and just really getting into it. I kind of get into this, you know, gear that it's, it's hard to get out of sometimes if you've been doing it for days or weeks, you know, and I'd be all by myself, lifting, moving, placing, lifting, really into it. And then somebody would come into the room and I'd have a whole other reason for walking, you know, and I'd started to finally use the the mental noting to track my experience and be going, lifting, moving, looking good, looking good, (laughs) lifting, looking good, looking good. After a while, it was, you know, more looking good than lifting, moving, placing, because that was what I... I could see it was, there was so much awareness of other and how I was looking. <clears throat> Add to that tendency, we come from a very competitive culture, don't we? We're number one. You know? Or we'd like to think of ourselves, that's the message the U.S. particularly is number one. You go to the football games or you know sports arenas, and you get that big sponge hand with the one sticking up, you know, the one finger. Yeah, we're number one. We're number one, as if it's something to pride ourselves on, because pride is a big part of our culture. And it doesn't matter whether it's our sports team. It's wonderful when it's your sports team, I must confess. <clears throat> or your 
spiritual practice or your class or your city or your subculture, whether or not putting yourself up as number one, there is this sense of me and us and them out there. And we can compare ourselves not only being better than, but being not as good or not as fortunate or somehow there's something that we need to improve about ourselves. And this is not only in a cultural setting, but in a personal setting, which is what I'll mainly focus on tonight. You know, my different attributes, my body, you know, oh, look at my body. You know, you look at movie stars and say, oh, God, look at my body. And there you are measuring yourself up against these, you know, goddesses and gods, you know, Adonises. You know, oh, look at my face, you know, that nose, you know, or that hair, or whatever it is. Or look at my mind. If you knew how many people came into interviews and said, my mind is really scattered, you know. One after another, you know. My, I know everybody says that their mind is scattered. My mind is really scattered, you know. It, it, you know, it's kind of a, a, almost a comedy. You have to kind of be respectful, but one after another, as you, you know, if you could hear what people come in with as being them being specially messed up, you know. <laughs> I remember when I was in college, there was almost a, a badge of depth, you know. I'm really screwed up, you know. <laughs> I'm deep, you know. I'm complex, you know. or my accomplishments or lack of accomplishments as being an indication of our worth, or my dramas. If you knew, nobody knows the trouble I've seen. And it's true that some people have gone through deep um, pains and dukkha. It's part of life. And some people maybe more than others have had, you know, great adversity adversity. But that doesn't necessarily need to define who you are. What happens is that we take ownership of our experience and have that be the definition of who we are and either prop ourselves up as being better than so that we're okay or worse than and, you know, so we're getting into a sense of Humility that is then becoming counterproductive because we're not good enough. And when you go into a room, you know, it's very common to kind of assess and evaluate everybody else besides you and where you fit into that. And it's interesting, that's an extra aspect that we add on to experience, particularly when we're around other human beings. It's somehow different. You don't go out into a a forest usually and look at all the different trees in the forest and say, it's too bad that that tree is so gnarled. You know, it's too bad it's not straight like the other trees. You know, a gnarled tree has character. 
and there's young saplings and there's strong, vibrant trees and there's bushy trees and all kinds. And every tree can be just the way it is. It's perfect just the way it is. But somehow when it comes to people, because we are a human being, that's when the comparing mind kicks in. In practice, it's so common, competitive practice. When I first started practicing, the first time I did a three-month retreat, I, I do have... I saw this competition streak in me, really, you know, in all its glory and humility. And I'd be, you know, I'd be getting into it and I'd be late, sitting there, late night sitting, after the late night and just going, you know, for an hour or two later, you know, 11 o'clock, you know, sometimes midnight, and there'd be, you know, other people in the hall. And as long as there was somebody else in the hall... All right, they're there, I'm here, you know. <laughs> and this went on, you know, night, night after night. It's some, finally, I went to, uh, to Joseph, my teacher, and I said, you know, I, I think there's something a little bit off here because, you know, I'm staying up late, but, you know, I'm very aware if there's somebody else in the hall and I'll be there, you know, until that. And he said, oh, I did the same thing in my practice, yeah. And then he told me about this one... One guy, he was practicing in the Burmese Vihara, and um, there was this one Danish guy who seemed to stay up all night. And one time he found out that the guy was just leaving his light on, and Joseph didn't know it. You couldn't see in the next room, you know. But he was staying in there, that guy has that light is on, he's on. You know? And he, he encouraged me, you know, just whatever gets you to be there, Notice those comparing thoughts. It's not doing away with them or judging yourself for them, but just notice how they operate. It was, it was very useful. External referenting. It is a, somehow a sense of validation of who we are. And we can, be, ha, we can have it set off at the slightest stimulation you know, if you're, if you're talking, say you come to an interview, right? And heaven forbid if, if the, the teacher you're interviewing is, had a really lousy night's sleep and there's a yawn that comes out, you know, just, you know, oh my God, you know, I must be really boring. You know? And it might have nothing to do with you. You have to really be alert when you're interviewing with somebody out of respect for them. But we can just project like that or giving a talk, you know. One way to get to somebody, if they're giving a talk, just start looking at your watch. (laughs) Or this move. (laughs) It'll do something to the mind, you know. <laughs> in uh, in the early in the early years when I was uh, when I was teaching, um, the comparing mind had uh, uh, really um, wonderful opportunity to uh, to be looked at. This first years when I first was teaching down at Yucca Valley, particularly, and 
Joseph Goldstein would give talk one night. Just the clearest Dharma one could hope for. Jack Cornfield would give the talk the next night, weave these incredibly heart-rending stories that open, open people up, and I'd give the talk the next night. Right? This is, you know, first year or two in, in teaching. And if I were in the audience, I'd be saying, oh, why isn't Joseph talking again, you know, probably? Or that's what I'd be projecting. And it was, uh, it was like a trial by fire, right? But all you can do is what you can do, because that's the, the situation you're in. So I thought I'd actually share a, a, a passage from Ajahn Sumedho that, that is like the quintessential on this that uh, I came across recently. He says, when I was young, Ajahn Sumedho, who's this just wonderful, he's like the, the most respected and the, the senior Western teacher uh, monk in Theravadan Buddhism, and he's come here and taught as a very good friend of our communities. When I was young, I was very self-conscious. To say something in public was absolutely terrifying for me. Even when I was in the Navy, just having to raise my voice to say, aye, aye, sir, in public, in roll call, would have me shaking because of self-consciousness. Then becoming a monk in Thailand and eventually having to give talks to Thai people in Thai, all this self-consciousness became apparent. The highs you'd get when you felt you'd given a good talk and everybody says, you're really good, Sumedho. You can give good Dhamma. Then sometimes I would give a really stupid talk and think, I don't want to give another talk ever again. I didn't become a monk to give talks. But the idea was to keep watching this. Ajahn Chah would always encourage me to keep aware of the pride, the conceit, the embarrassment, and the self-consciousness that I would feel. And fortunately, in Thailand, the people are such that they're just grateful for a monk giving a talk. Even if it's not a very good talk, it doesn't seem to upset them very much. They still seem quite grateful about it. So that made it a bit easier. One time, at a ceremony where we had to sit up all night, Ajahn Chah said, Sumedho, you have to give a talk for three hours tonight. (laughs) And up till that time, I'd only talked for a half an hour. That was a strain, but three hours, and he knew. With Ajahn Chah, I always felt that if he said something, I'd do it. So I sat up on the high seat and talked for three hours. I had to sit there and watch people get up and leave. And I had to sit there and watch people just lie down on the floor and sleep in front of me. And at the end of the three hours, there were still a few polite old ladies left sitting there. That wasn't Ajahn Chah saying, okay, Sumedho, go in there and bowl them over with some scintillating stuff, entertain them, really sock it to them. I began to realize that what he wanted me to do was to be able to look at this self-consciousness, the posing, the pride, the conceit, the grumbling, the lazy, the not wanting to be bothered, the wanting to please, the wanting to entertain, the wanting to get approval. All these have come up during these talks of the past 15 years, but the meditation is one in which more and more one feels a real understanding 
of the suffering of a self-view. And then through that insight, one realizes the abiding in emptiness. Hmm. The comparing mind is not only in comparison to others and what they think of us, but we also have a habit, perhaps you've seen it, of comparing with ourselves, with our own high standards. And in that respect, it's even more merciless. Because if that is operating, there's no way you're going to match your highest standard. All that can happen is you meet your highest standard and you pass. You know, the best you can do as a perfectionist is break even. Right? You either pass or you've blown it. And when you have a, a sweet experience here, you sit, come and sit and have a, a nice sitting, maybe you're clear. It's wonderful and it can be very uh, inspiring and give you some faith that there's something going on. But watch out because right there, you can so easily be setting up the comparing mind and the next time you sit, well, it wasn't like the last one. What did I do? How did I blow it? And it's really painful. Have you seen that? Notice that. Hmm. So this is all about that it should be different, it should be more. I should be better. What it really is saying, or what is really the root of this pain, is there's a fear, I think, or a misperception that you are not enough. That this moment as it expresses itself through you is not complete just as it is. This fear of not being enough is so prevalent and it is, it expresses itself so often in our culture, not just people on retreat, but in our culture, in throughout our culture, in a feeling of unworthiness, of not deserving happiness or freedom or goodness. That shyness or that humility which then gets perverted into um, an undeserving attitude. A number of years ago, uh, was sitting uh, at at IMS. Actually, Howie was on the same retreat in 1979. I think you were sitting in 1979. Yeah, all she was up in her room, up in the attic. I didn't see her, but yeah, we were all sitting there. And then at the very end of that retreat, um, the Dalai Lama came. It's really neat to be sitting for two and a half months, and then the, His Holiness the Dalai Lama comes. You know, that was a treat, right? So. Uh, there were some questions and answers with the Dalai Lama. And somebody asked, asked him about dealing with um, unworthiness. How, you know, wh- what advice did he have to give for 
uh, low self-esteem and, and unworthiness. And the, His Holiness and the translator went back and forth a few times as the translator tried to explain to him what that concept meant. And it took a little while, and then finally the Dalai Lama got it. And he said very directly and forcefully, you're wrong. You're absolutely wrong to have this view. Can you imagine the Dalai Lama, the Bodhisattva of compassion, after, after you're sitting for two months saying, you're wrong. You know? But then he went on in a great compassionate way to say, you're wrong because you're not seeing who you really are. What would make you think that everything else belongs in the universe and somehow you're a mistake? You know? That you don't belong. That you don't have the, the, the Buddha nature that everything else does. This feeling of not being good enough is really a misperception. It's, it's insulting the Dharma, one could say, to think that you don't belong. Here's a, a quote I came across. Believing your littleness is arrogant because it's preferring our own opinion to God's. I mean, that's another way of saying the same thing. Believing in your littleness is arrogant because it's preferring your opinion to God's. Whatever you call God, the mystery, the perfection of life, the Dharma. Not enough. How could you not be enough when you're an expression of life manifesting through that form? Hmm. Just wondering whether to tell this story. Well, I will. Uh, some of you have heard it before, but it just is coming up. Going to see uh, Punjaji, this wonderful teacher that we spent time with. And he talked about having uh, you being perfect just as you are, complete, that you are already free if you'd only stop trying to figure everything out and just rest in your natural state. But I came from a, you know, the Buddhist perspective of cultivation and when you are ready, when conditions are ripe, you will awaken fully. So we went back and forth about this, and I had lots of questions about it. And uh, he talked about it in terms of uh, the grace of the grace of not only the guru, the grace of the the mystery, the grace of of the Dharma. And I said, well, you know, I don't know if my if my karma is ripe. You know, you talk that I'm that I can be free right in this moment. How do I know my my karma is? Uh, is, uh, has come to fruition. That's how I see it. Or as you say, grace. How do I know that my grace, that I have enough grace to be fully awake and free? And he says, uh, grace. He says, you come here. You come from across the planet with great sincerity. All conditions created for you to come here. Be here good teacher. You know, Good teaching, pure heart, good conditions, grace. You're neck deep in grace and you don't see you have grace. (laughs) 
And we're all neck deep in grace. If you think about it, here we are practicing the Dharma, having the the conditions and the situation in our life to really just go for the truth with a supportive environment, with community that is committed as you to see things deeply and clearly. But somehow we get confused in thinking, maybe I'm not good enough. And not seeing what's so obvious on this side of the interview chair. How could you not be good enough? What extraordinary karma you have to be here and for us to practice together. So getting beyond that unworthiness then we can take a look and see who we really are. According to the Buddha, one way to see who we really are is seeing this mind-body process in terms of five components, what are called aggregates or skandhas or khandhas, when you break down the experience of being a human being and being alive, he said, there is form, there is a body with sensations and those laws that govern a body. And then there are four aspects that have to do with mind. There is feeling, which the way he used it meant that in every moment there is the pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral flavor of experience. So there's a feeling tone to our being in each moment, pleasant, unpleasant, neutral. There is perception. This is all part of the mind. How when we experience something, we recognize it, we perceive it, and we kind of file it or... um, categorize it in terms of memory, in terms of past experience. So when you hear a certain sound outside a whistle, you say, ah, bird. That's perception. Then there is the mental formation that, can, that is continually coming, our thoughts and our emotions. And then there is the consciousness that registers, the knowing faculty that registers our experience. You wouldn't be able to hear that bird if there wasn't hearing consciousness and awareness that can receive it. And he said, if you take a look, that's who we really are. And the only problem comes when we grasp at those components and say, this is me, rather than seeing that they are just this flow of phenomena that happens through us. As soon as you take ownership, you are causing a creation of self, an extra added component of that, um, that situation where you can see Oh, look at my reaction. Look at my mind. 
oh, gee, look at that thought. Hey, I, I'm pretty neat for having that kind of thought. I hope people see how wonderful a person I am as it just flew through the screen. Or, oh my goodness, what a rotten thought that was. And uh, people are going to find out how really rotten I am. You've taken ownership of your mental formation or you've taken ownership of your body saying, I should be more of a mesomorph, you know, why are am I why am I an endomorph? You know? Or why why can't I sing like so and so? Or why can't I draw like so and so? Or hey, look at me, I can dance. And now certainly we have our gifts. And it's not to say that one should deny our situation and our, uh, our strengths or our areas of development. But when we judge ourselves for who we are, that's extra. When we say, oh, why aren't I more like this? That's just adding a very painful perception on top of what is, just what is. And so there's a place of both honoring the relative and seeing beyond it to see who through, to see who you really are. There's a no. So I'll read this one. This is uh, Nyosho Kempo. He says, Buddha nature, the essence of awakened enlightenment itself, is present in everyone. Its essence is forever pure, unalloyed, and flawless. It is beyond increase or decrease, neither improved by remaining in nirvana nor degenerated by straying into samsara. Its fundamental essence is forever perfect, unobscured, quiescent, and unchanging. Its expressions are myriad, many expressions of that perfection. Those who recognize their true nature are enlightened. Those who ignore or overlook it are deluded. There is no way to enlightenment other than by recognizing Buddha nature and achieving stability in that, which implies authentically identifying it within one's own stream of being, and training in that incisive recognition through simply sustaining its continuity without alteration or fabrication. To identify your own perfection within your own stream of being. And then when you see that perfection, when you recognize who you really are, you can also honor and celebrate the relativity of experience. Your business isn't to compare it with other expressions, as Martha Graham says. Your business is to keep it yours directly, to keep the channel open that there's something unique in you that you have as a gift to life. 
And when you can see that, then you can see it without taking ownership of it. Oh, aren't I wonderful? But just, ah, look at this gift that I have to give. How blessed I am. What Sumedos calls the shining through of the divine. It's an expression I love that he uses. It doesn't mean, hey, aren't I great? It's, ah, this somehow has been allowed to shine through me in this way. And when you get in touch with that, you're seeing beyond the skandhas. You are, it's actually a gift that you give not only to yourself, but to everyone. It's a bodhisattva act to see that divine as it shines through you. Because as you see it shining through you, then you allow it and you you can see it in others as well. If you're, I remember Trungpa Rinpoche, Tibetan teacher, saying, timidity is just another ego trip. You know, oh yes, no, I'm not, not really good enough and you know that's a stance that you take and that doesn't help anybody another quote from uh, Nelson Mandela's inaugural speech he says we ask ourselves who am i to be brilliant gorgeous talented and fabulous actually who are you not to be you are a child of god your playing small doesn't serve the world There's nothing enlightened about shrinking so that other people won't feel insecure around you. We were born to make manifest the glory of God that is within us. It's not just in some of us, it's in everyone. And as we let our own light shine, we unconsciously give other people permission to do the same. As we are liberated from our own fear, our presence automatically liberates others. It's really a gift that you give to others, not self-indulgent. So, how to work with the comparing and the judging mind. I thought I'd spend a little time with that. When you see it, I think what is first called for is some real forgiveness and compassion with this predicament that we find ourselves in. And the compassion comes from seeing how deeply conditioned that habit of separation and comparison runs. With that understanding, there's less likelihood of blame and beating yourself up. It's just, it's just a, a habit of mind that you've practiced very well. Can you do that when you find yourself caught again? Oh my God, there I am putting myself down. Just think of how many millions of times you've practiced that that response. I had that experience once seeing in that comparing mind just very, very humbled by seeing this presentation and ego as uh, as I was doing 
a slow walking in the gym and just seeing, oh, wow, I really blew that person's mind as they bolted out. Just thinking, oh my God, how can I get out of this mind? I've been practicing for two months and, ooh, so much ego. And then in a moment, I got in touch with the millions of times that I had that kind of a thought. Oh, wow. What did I think? I was going to unlearn it all in two months? Okay. And that moment of compassion, it was, it was a very profound moment for me. Oh, just doing the best I can. That's a good place to start. Knowing you're doing the best you can and it's just habit running itself. One way that I find very helpful in dealing with that habit, particularly around judging, is being very kind with the tone that you recognize judgment in the mind. You know, we've put out one option is using a mental noting. And the mental noting can be very powerful as a way to change your relationship to experience. There you are, you're sitting and you're noting or you're trying to be with the breath and then you see your mind wander and you say, oh, thinking, I was thinking. And then you realize, oh, I was judging, not supposed to be judging. (laughs) Right. Judging. Oh, I just did it again. (laughs) Judging. There's more judgment, you know. And you can just keep on adding one layer on top of another. Oh, judging, I did it again. At any point, if you realize with the kindest tone, oh, what's happening is just judging. And you can say it really kindly. I I find it helpful, you know, just to have a visceral feel of what it's like to to be very kind, like a a grandmother caressing a baby, you know. Sometimes I have people do this, you might try it, just as you're stroking your cheek, say in the kindest voice possible, silently to yourself, judging, judging. It's like in one moment, if you get it, if your body gets it, that's how you can bring compassion to that habit. And every time you notice it in that way, you are developing a new relationship with it. So that's one way that it starts, forgiveness and compassion for the conditioning. A second, the, the central approach of practice is seeing the emptiness of the thoughts. Seeing it's just a thought coming through that you don't have to believe. Thoughts are as real as you make them and as empty as you let them be. And where the meditation can serve you is starting to get a sense of the space around the thoughts. If you're not jumping on to each thought as it comes through, you're practicing just being here and not buying into the content. And that space around the thoughts makes all the difference in the world because as you practice that, in, your, in the rest of your life, as those thoughts come through, you start to get a sense of the tone that the thoughts come through in. And some of them are coming through, a lot of them probably, with a harsh, critical, judgmental, or grasping, or fearful edge that says, why didn't you do that? Or you really need this. This will make it better. Come on, let's get going. Uh-oh, what about now? 
that kind of contracted, agitated tone. And then there are other thoughts that come through in a much deeper place, from a much deeper place, that say, this feels right, or this doesn't feel right. There's a very wise Buddha in there that we usually don't tune into because there's so much static from all the other thoughts, because we're so busy believing all the other ones that come through, getting confused by them. And if you can start to listen to the tone because you have enough space around the thoughts, then the ones that are coming from that contracted or agitated place, you can just let come and go all by themselves. And the ones that are coming from a much deeper place, you can then empower. That's where you have some choice. Ah, okay, this is one I can trust. This is one I can act, I can act on. And having more and more connection with that place of deeper wisdom, taking refuge in the Buddha, then you can live more from that place. But it comes from first seeing the emptiness of the thoughts as you're practicing these days here. You don't have to believe any thought. You can have any thought in the world, and it's just a thought. You don't, in, you don't have to take ownership of it. You don't have to feel bad about it or blame yourself or take credit. It's just thoughts coming through. Just like the ear hears, that's the function of the ear to think, to, to hear. The function of the mind is to think. It creates. And it can create anything. So you, thought is not the enemy, as I said the other day. It's just seeing it in its place, seeing it wisely and not jumping into the content, but just seeing the process of thinking to get some space around those thoughts. Something else is having a sense of humor for this conditioning. Because if you don't, it's not funny. (laughs) It just ain't funny. On one retreat, looking at the judging mind, I was... uh, I just added on this couplet from the Third Zen Patriarch that says, the, thir- the, the burdensome practice of judging brings annoyance and weariness. That was the line, and it really made sense to me. And I go into the meal times, and every time I'd notice, I'd see a judging thought, I'd just tack on the line, the burdensome practice of judging, okay, just to remember. And I'd be going there, you know, oh, you know, Look at him do his thing. The burdensome practice of judging. Oh, I hope I'm okay. The burdensome. I go through about 50 or 75 times at least every meal. I did this for about a week, just watching my judging thoughts. And after a while, you just had to laugh. It was it was crazy. It was absurd. You know, if you can laugh, then you have some lightness and space around it. You're not taking it so personally. And you have to watch out because it gets very, very tricky, you know. Just when you think that you're free, you can get caught in a moment. A couple of years ago, a few years ago, I was doing this, this retreat and I was given the instruction, notice how any sense of self is being created, right? Any sense of self. And I was really excited. I was really kind of getting into it and just seeing, oh, I can be in this moment, in this moment, without identifying with it. This one time I was doing this walking meditation uh, in the lower walking room. This is my favorite place. And just kind of through this uh, 
this area, lifting, moving, placing it. And through the corridor comes this kind of clunking bull in a china shop kind of yogi, just kind of boom, boom. He was, you know, he was uh, an object of compassion for a, a number of people and an object of other stuff for others, right? <laughs> and there he was, and he was writing this, he was writing down as he was walking on this big book. Some people were keeping track of their meditations and of their best meditations. And he had this big book that he was writing and clomping through. And, and I was going lifting, moving, placing. And the thought came, you know, watching sense of any sense of self, any sense of self. And he comes through and I say, well, I certainly have a lot less sense of self than he does. <laughs> <laughs> Boom. Caught again. Any kind of reification, look at me compared to other. So you have to have a sense of humor around it. Working with the comparing mind, sometimes you have to act as if you were truly the Buddha. Just pretend, you know, it's a start. It is. Because as you practice it, what would it be like to be the Buddha? What would it be like to be perfect just as I am? Once the mind can see that possibility, then it can grow into that possibility. So it's not cheating. Just you might go around tomorrow just imagining that you are absolutely perfect or complete. Maybe you don't have to wait till tomorrow. Start right now or tonight. What would it be, look, what would it be like to be perfect? just the way I am, knowing that I'm doing the best I can and have a sincerity that I bring to my life. Taking refuge in your Buddha nature, in the perfection of who you are. This is uh, from Nisargadot. He says, uh, I am now 74 years old, and yet I feel that I am an infant. I feel clearly that in spite of all the changes, I am a child. My guru told me, that child which is you even now is your real self. Go back to that state of pure being where the I am is still in its purity before it got contaminated with this I am or that I am. Your burden is of false self-identifications. Abandon them all. My guru told me, trust me, I tell you, you are divine. Take it as the absolute truth. Your joy is divine, your suffering is divine too. Remember it always. I believed him and soon realized how wonderfully true and accurate were his words. I did not condition my mind by thinking, I am God, I am wonderful, I am beyond. I simply followed his instruction, which was to focus the mind on pure being, I am, and stay in it. Only peace remained and unfathomable silence. Because when you get in touch with that, even a taste of it, when you're comparing... When you get into comparing, what are you comparing? Your 
Buddha nature with somebody else's? My Buddha nature is better than your Buddha nature. Is it yours? My love is better than your love. My pure love is better than your pure love. It's just love manifesting through us. My awareness is better than your awareness. It's, it's a complete misperception. It's just a play of consciousness through us. So working with this comparing mind, being very kind with it, seeing how empty it is, having some ease and lightness about it, not taking it personally so you can see who you really are. And you can allow the shining through of the divine. This is the heart of what the Buddha was talking about when he said, truly be free of this conceit of I am. See your true nature. So let's sit for a few moments. So there's a half an hour for walking and then we'll do some chanting, the last sitting. <clears throat>